0: On today's episode of the Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dr. Augustin Chavez. As an architect and academic, he has dedicated his career to understanding the notion of work and uncovering environments that best support our working lives. Gus's interest in the relationship between people, space, and technology saw him pursue a PhD on the evolution of workplace architecture as a consequence of technology development. His work has been presented at various international forums and publications. As a sought after speaker, he has delivered international keynotes and is a TEDx speaker. He has also contributed to workplace strategies in Australia, New Zealand, and Singapore. Gus is the workplace lead at the Center for the New Workforce and an adjunct research fellow at the Center for Design Innovation at Swinburne University, as well as an honorary fellow at the Center for Workplace Leadership at the University of Melbourne. Most importantly, for the purposes of our conversation, he is the author of the Pilgrim's Guide. To the workplace and that's where we're going to be spending most of our time and it's a pleasure to welcome gus to the show welcome to the deep dive how are you my friend hi
1: philip very good thank you for the invitation looking forward to this chat
0: yeah we've been scheduling this and and you've been really wonderful with your time and and dealing with the craziness that is my schedule generally and my recording schedule generally i tell people i record in these huge bunches so it's like getting them all all down and done sometimes as a yeoman's task, but I was really excited for our particular conversation because you know it, it gives me a chance to talk to someone who has really put a philosophical lens onto how we think about work, our workplaces, our environments, our structures, and it's not something that you often see. And as a self-avowed supporter of things like unions and the right to organize, when folks are talking about like work and where future of work and where do you see work? Like my tagline is the future of work is labor, right? If you're, if you're not talking about people, you're not talking about work. I don't want to hear about gadgets and doodads and apps and all this kind of stuff. So I'm really excited to talk to someone who has given this really amazing amount of thought and intellectual rigor. So I want to applaud you on that. I'm going to start at the beginning, obviously, but I felt like a lot of what's being offered in your book, and, and this is just my particular takeaway, is who are we as people? Because so often we define ourselves via our work. It's one of the first things that people ask when they meet you. And maybe I'm, I'm generalizing from a New York perspective where that's usually one of the first things that people ask what do you do for a living right um so maybe i'm hypersensitive to that but i really wanted to start it with a very big kind of heavy question like who are we as people and how does that affect work in our environments that's a fantastic question to
1: start with and uh, as you mentioned when people when you're in a barbecue or on a party or something, i introduce you hello my name is goss and i'm then you develop your identity through the work that you do or uh, because that also is a shorthand of the view of the world. If I I say that I'm an architect, already people made assumptions about me, of how I see the world and so on. Someone tells me they're an artist, likewise. So work, it's what gave us a sense of identity, purpose, belonging, and so on. There are so many studies and experiments in which researchers have removed the economic variable, the reason why we work to get money. And people will still engage in this type of activities just to have that sense of belonging and purpose and meaning. The problem is what has been happening now is that most of the time we talk about tasks, not work. And some of the things we might um, talk a bit later, but just to preempt the workplace, which is the area that I study, it's like a temple of work or should be a temple of work of meaning and purpose of human purpose, but has become a temple to rationality, to, to efficiencies, to tasks. So that's what I want to talk about, the difference between task places, places that promote or foster the undertaking of tasks, and workplaces, places that gave us communicate those very important social attributes. The problem that the office is going through is that it's going through a crisis of um, of being a task place and not a workplace.
0: You led us into a very interesting place because one of the things I often wrestle with is not in my own work, which is joyfully chaotic, but in previous works and when I read about work, there's a, a focus on efficiency, right? And I've often made the counter argument that we should be focused on what's effective rather than what's efficient. Effective to me means, and and these are are not sort of academic definitions. These are just my definitions of someone who works, right? Is that I want to be effective at what I do in using my time and efficiency, it measures the completion of, at least in my mind, when I think about how efficient something is getting done there usually is a a matter of speed, right? Like how quick we're doing the thing. And speed at something isn't often the best measurement, right? It always strikes me that a lot of this thinking from a a managerial discipline comes from like assembly line thinking, right? That the faster we can roll the Model Ts off the assembly line, the better it all was. But I don't know how effective that is, (laughs) right? So I'm curious your thoughts on, on that and how that is factored into your thinking.
1: So you're absolutely right. The work and the workplace is, is a pursuit of uh, efficiencies. And Max Weber, the, the German philosopher and economist, he defines and understands rational efficiency as looking for opportunities to making tasks and activities more efficient. So he talks about, you know, in agriculture, to make the process more efficient, people start looking at rituals that did not contribute to the production of more crops, but that had meaning to the people involved in those, and then start to remove those. So what happened is, let's say you have a successful crop, and you want to celebrate, and that becomes, of course, something that gives you a sense of meaning and purpose, and that's why you do it. But then someone said, well, guys, you know what? if we kind of skip that celebration and keep farming, we might be more productive what we do. So looking at ways of making things more productive usually comes at the expense of removing activities that don't add to the production, but add to the meaning. And then we're left of doing exactly what we're doing, tasks, not work. So that's why I see also proliferation of the use of gamification, in organizations because what they do is they try to reintroduce purpose in meaningless tasks. We have become so effective in the tasks that we do that they're just processes, as you were saying, that can be done and automated. That's why now a lot of people are shaking their boots with ChatGPT and all these AIs because we have made it so automated that machines can do them. So that's the double-edged sword of efficiency. And this misunderstanding that efficiencies will give time back to the employer, to the person are flawed. People think that with chat GPT and we will release time of our day because we can now rely on technology. A study done by, I think, MIT on stud- studying the amounts of hours that we work. We work more hours now that we do in pre-industrial uh, times because now expectations increases of our production. So th- when disruption that allow us to increase the, our production, it's not that they say, okay, we're going to maintain that level of production, uh, enjoy your free time that comes out of that benefit. No, you're now expected to produce more, so you end up working even more.
0: This is a, a, a cycle that I find frustrating right and i'm glad you you talked about gamification and chat gpt which is a which is a topic that i've resisted introducing on the show only because when i when i read and look at the discourse i'm just astounded that people think that this is a meaningful thing right and i am not an expert on it by any stretch of imagination and i am on the record as being tech reluctant Anybody who knows me knows I am tech reluctant, tech skeptic, whatever you want to call it. I'm that person, right? But the more I read about things like chat GPT, I'm like, this has got to be one of the the stupidest things I've ever heard of. Right. Like, I don't I don't know. I and again, this is not I have not read any studies, I've not done a lot of deep work on this. But the reason why I say this is because it seems like it' operates under the guise of the lowest common denominator that if you're just looking for content <laughs> right like because i see it often talked about in the advertising and, and branding and marketing world like oh it could just churn out press releases and it can like churn out tweets and it could do all this stuff but i'm like do we need those things like you're, you're asking it to do something that maybe we should be questioning do we need any of this right like if it's so easy for a box to do this stuff, maybe we shouldn't be doing this stuff. Maybe we should be doing other stuff, right? So that's kind of like, I don't know, there's no question in there, right? It's just a statement that I'm, I'm, I'm sure you haven't thought about. <laughs> to add on that, because I think you're
1: right, I think the quality of good content is gone. Now I've seen a proliferation of people posting in LinkedIn, in social media, blogs that they have never posted before. Just because now you can go to ChatGPT and put write up a blog about this, and it's written there. So I think we are gonna go through a period of saturation of content of not very good quality created by these AIs and hopefully things stabilizes. But to your point about technology, I actually welcome these type of developments because it pushes us harder to think what it means to be human. We go through the evolution of technology. Technology went to the replacement of the body; it has replaced our muscles in the factory, in the production line. But now, it's through cognitive computing, is trying to replace our mind. That's where these uh, chatbots and uh, AI uh, comes comes in. So, in doing that, it has forced many of us to think about it. And through, perhaps, we might talk a, a little bit later about this, but just to preempt what I think it is our competitive advantage that I've seen came through the uh, push of technology to, to come to this realization is our capacity to be absurd. Because technology algorithms, they're based on logic of the progressions of things. What I think is our unique capability which is very difficult for technology to mimic is our capability to be absurd to entertain two propositions that cannot be simultaneously true and then find ways of making them happen like a bird made out of metal see how will that fly and then you have the airplane is this type of innovations that creates better futures not innovation by having what we currently have just cheaper and faster but creating new societies. So that's why I'm excited about these developments, not because of the short-term production gains, but because it pushes us to redefine us as humans.
0: I don't disagree with that, but I guess where I land on this is that yes, some people are having deeper conversations about humanity, but not most of it, right? Like most of this stuff, it's landing in the pro camp, without asking the why camp, right? As, you know, the culture person, I'm looking at, well, why is that, right? Why are the voices telling me that this is relevant more at the forefront of these conversations than those that are asking, I think, the questions you're asking? And again, that's why I started the conversation talking about, like, there's deep thought and rigor that went into your work. You know, the notion of the absurd, I would guess is not being thrown around in the offices of Microsoft and Bit, right? (laughs) Like, that's not what they're doing. The realization of this in whatever iteration is by its nature good. And what I'm trying to suss out is the bigger question is, what are we asking these tools to do? And why are we so quick to believe our minds work like this? Because our minds don't really work like that. Right, so when they're telling me this thing is thinking, I'm like, I don't know about that. Right?
1: When you introduce the book and you say that it, it presents some philosophical views about the work, and it's interesting because I think that already paralyzes. I, I know that there's a bias in your audience. Perhaps people that are like-minded are like uh, seek this type of thinking, but it already paralyzes the word philosophy because it immediately positions it as the opposite of practical. So this type of thinking, this type of pursuit seems to be at odds with what we crave and what we actually do in the real world. So that's why I'm trying my earnest not to position the book as a philosophical book, even though I think it is just, but because I want the learnings and and we're going to talk about maybe that bit later to be implemented. And how do we break the barrier of the deep thinking, the purposes, the, the strive for human? I can have one-to-one conversations with people about the future of work, and they always point to a better, more human, purposeful uh, future. Then, as a society, as a collective, we go the other side. We go to the side of of or and so on. So those are very important questions to solve.
0: I think, and and maybe again, this is definitely a bias in the audience of the show. (laughs) That is undeniable. But I think that is useful to the extent that the idea that philosophy isn't practical to me is crazy, right? Because I think these are the most practical questions that exist Right. Because we're, we're talking about there is no more, to me, practical and useful question than meaning in our lives. Right. The relationships between each other. So wherever those conversations are being had, to me, are the most important conversations. Yes. Right. So I think the and and I'm not giving you advice on how to market your book. <laughs> I'm just saying that like Yeah, no no no, I get it. I think it's a master stroke because when you when you started off at the beginning because this is one of my prompts, right? And you talked about relocating, right? And being a certified architect in Mexico, right? And now you're moving to Australia and the certification process is now different, right? And so you have a career. You have a title, a place in the world that is severed by a geographical shift. And now you have to reassert that in another geography, right? Some of that is technical, right? It's efficiencies, it's certifying and checking boxes and paying fees, I'm assuming, right? That there's forms that need to be filled out for visas and tickets that need to be bought, right? But what I took from that part of of your journey and I want to get your reflection on obviously, but I'm just, I'm, my, why that was so important to me was the severing of that knowing of yourself in one place vis-a-vis another is the emphasis behind all of this. That's a fantastic
1: question again. And, and it goes back to the, how we introduce, uh, or we start talking about this, about the work and identity. So you're absolutely right. When I was in Mexico, I had my, my family, my friends, my food. And I anticipated that when I moved out, relocated to Australia, I would miss those. But I never thought I would miss my ability to be called an architect. Because when I got here, and people were asking me in the professional circles, so Gals, what do you do? Well, I'm an architect. And then people would start me telling me, well, actually you cannot call yourself an architect because an architect term is protected by law here. It means something. You need to go through a registration process. And that created, <laughs> I want to say a crisis because I don't want to be that existentialist, but uh, uh, that identity, I cannot, what do you mean? I mean, I was an architect in Mexico. Why cannot be an architect here? I lost my family and food there, but how, why am I losing that part of my identity here? I, I'm I'm bringing my brain with me. That should stay. Long story short, you need to register for three years, go through a process three years and so on. Of course, not a process of identity of re- regaining your identity, it's a process of contract management, making sure that if you're sued, uh, you understand the contracts and the practice of architecture in that term. So, it's again, it's not about the profession of a self creating identity, it's about ensuring the uh, the smooth, liable, <laughs> the liabilities of the profession,
0: but it did lead to asking really big questions. It
1: is asking very big questions.
0: Yeah. And those are the big questions that I love, right? Because if we are identifying and connecting some part of ourselves with what we do, then what does it say about ourselves if we continue to build and work in spaces that don't serve us, right? Or, Or maybe don't serve us as well. And these are big questions, right? In the sense that, you know, as, as we now live in a COVID world, right? Because I, I resist using words like post-COVID and all that kind of stuff. Because despite the attempts of, of the media, COVID is still a thing, right? <laughs> like it still exists, despite the fact that mandates and a lot of stuff have shifted. But COVID is a thing. And at least here in the United States, there has been a, a marked push by most corporations to get people back to an office, right? Back to this place where work happens. And we existed from 2020 to now in a number of different things, distributed, work from home, whatever you want to call it, right? Work was now happening in other places. And as someone who has lived that before those were the terms, it didn't seem odd to me. But these were huge shifts in the way people were thinking. So you've given deep thought to what our workplaces look like. So what, what I'd love to get your thoughts on is these shifts that, that I've highlighted, have seen this urge to pull people back into an environment. You know, how has that impacted your thinking around what a, a, a functioning workplace can and should be so.
1: Going back to your point of uh, the importance of better questions, I think better questions will shape better environments rather than the answers. We are obsessed with the answers. We don't pay too much attention on the questions. So finding that better place to work can start with better questions. One of the questions that I had is, well, okay, people, you, you mentioned the office and this pushback to people to work there. Now. If we plot the history of work, how human beings, how long have we been working for, we will see that the office has contained the notion of work for a very, very short time. It didn't exist. It's not a natural phenomenon. The way we talk about the office now, it's like that is the God-given place of work to occur. And if it doesn't happen there, there's very wrong reasons. So if it was not created there, well when was it created and what was the context that gave us? So that question led me to start studying the history of the office. And it's very much recent than people think it is. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but it was created with a context that has ceased to be relevant to us. And still we have this legacy that work needs to happen there. So the way that I resolve the current problem that we're right now about hybrid working, should we work from home, from the office? Is work at the workplace. The workplace is the place that you're working. And if the office was an invention, a product of its time, now it can be reinvented. Let's think about how we rethink co-located environments where we work, because that's what you can define the office and then other spaces distributed and so on. This is important. This is not just semantics because hybrid working tethers the notion of work to the office and because it's the office and then satellites on other places. What I'm proposing is forget about that conversation and talk about the workplace, the places where work occurs. And that opens so many opportunities and all these mandates and things go second level. You know, it's more about the attributes about these places that we were working because one thing that the COVID made is actually debunked the working anywhere, anytime motto. You know, before then we used to have this work, any work, uh, anywhere, anytime motto, and we thought it was true. What this thing did is actually make us think that we actually work somewhere, sometime, because the qualities of the where we work and the when we work matters. If it didn't, we wouldn't have in these conversations. People will be not scratching their heads about, can you work from the office? Can you work from the home? The qualities of the space matter or, and the time, the four-day-week work, different uh, arrangements. So something that we thought you choose? No, it's actually there are reasons why it needs to be
0: certain ways. I want to go a little deeper into this, the notion of that tethering. Like, why are we so tethered to this notion of an office? I mean, there's a famous TV show called The Office, right? <laughs> like, it's it's literally built into our mindset in a way that is, it's not like I'm saying this is particularly bad, but I mean, as someone growing up in the 70s and 80s worked to me as a kid... Was something that my parents left to go do in a place, right? And and that place on on one side of my parents looked very much like an office to an extent. Even as a as a young person going to work with my dad, it's like, oh, there's desk here, people kind of sitting in rows, you know, like they're doing things. Coffee machine, you know, it's in the 80s where people had coffee machines. There were no Starbucks, right? So this is a idea that has beyond the practical has some cultural resonance that I'm curious about. So I would love your, your thoughts on, like you said, it's, it starts with an office and then satellites, and you're trying to break that, right? And, and so I'm, I'm trying to get at why are we so tethered to that original idea in the first place?
1: Well, funny enough, in going through this process of the history of the office or the workplaces, we used to work at home before there was an office. So before there was this place that people called the office, People will work from home. What drives the push of creating this centralized place is when increase of business created a very practical need of, instead of me working from home and people need to come, more people I need to hire more people because the business were uh, improving because connection of railways and, and so on increased businesses, I needed to go another place to have more people to work there. So it was a very practical place to go there. Then the other thing is the amount of information that that generated. Back in the day, we have forgotten, but back in the day, information was stored and captured in paper, and that occupied a lot of space. So it was the access of having people together and also access of storing the information and technology, machines that could not be portable, that created that need of people to go in that place. But again, we started working at home. And even banking dynasties like the Rothschilds, the office was an emerging typology. They still were working from home. They'll have their clients because the type of uh, messages that they want to convey to them about opulence and tranquility and so on, it was better communicated, they thought, at their place, at their home, that at this emerging typology. One thing that we need to remember is that the workplace is not only the place or the office that people go to work, but also send messages Messages to the community, messages to their employees, and they anchor culture uh, in this environment. So it's a very cultural and message loaded environment. How we define work, and before I think we, before we start recording, you were saying that it's hard for you to define work because sometimes you're doing things that you enjoy that cannot be perceived as traditional work. And that also comes to this because how we define work is very difficult. The same activity watching Netflix for me might be leisure, but for a professional critic might be work. So it's not the activity in and on itself that defines the notion of work. It's not also pay pay work because I could be caring for an elderly parent or so on that I don't get remuneration for, but it's still work. It's the same activity. So some people, uh, this goes back to the Greeks and philosophers, have defined work in opposition of leisure. So, if it's not an activity that is leisure, then it therefore has to be work. This creates also as an architect very interesting uh, dichotomies because then you have environments, domestic environments like a home, which sits in opposition of what happens in another place, which is the office. Before we didn't have that separation. And now we have a very clear separation of that through the work and environment. but And that has created uh, people need to navigate these cognitive barriers of work-life balance As they say, and what, how do I cross these boundaries?
0: That is a boundary that I've not learned to navigate at all because like I said, I'm always doing something that to me is connected to my work, quote unquote, because my work is life and people, right? So I feel like if I'm in the world, work is happening. But one of the things that that challenges me, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it, is work is also broken down into these, a lot of different sections and lines that to me cut across class and culture and how we see ourselves in the world, right? So when COVID hit, which again, is just a kind of a useful delineation, and people started talking about, you know, work and what are we going to do and work from home and all all the things i already cited you know a lot of that becomes well some people can do that right some people's work has the ability to plug into zoom or microsoft teams or whatever right as inconvenient as it might be there's still the the ability to do it other people's work there is no microsoft teams or zoom right like if you are a conductor on the A train here in New York, the only way you're doing that job is to physically leave your home and go to the depot and start the train and move the train from 207th Street out to Queens, right? That's how that operates. And so we kind of came up with another label called essential workers, right? Those were the people that were kind of busying themselves around while the rest of us worked from home right? So if you needed your Uber Eats, there was someone that was bringing it to you, right? While you worked from home and they were in the streets during the pandemic and continue to be that way, right? And we have a, a technology world that makes that more and more the thing, right? Uber and Uber Eats and all the things, right? So it, it feels to me that we have started to more bifurcate work you know there's the knowledge economy right there's skilled versus unskilled there's white collar versus blue collar back in the day right very long preamble but what i'm trying to get at is how do we in your mind create places where people work as as you stated while also recognizing that places where some people work has created for them right they don't have input into what the mcdonalds look like or and in a, it doesn't need to be those examples, but it could be anything. So I
1: did this thing that I describe in the book. Uh, very shortly, I walked from Melbourne to Sydney, trying to incubate a unique idea about work. And that was a very intense experience, as people can imagine. And then imagine coming back to my work, to my my job, my daily job, and I only had two weeks between having that very intense experience of isolation, introspection, and so on, and going back to doing my job. And as I was sitting there um, as a workplace researcher, it took me years. It took me years to be able to articulate what I have learned. So for a while, I thought I didn't learn anything about it. So it's not that I came back like the messiah or the illuminated one with, with the answers of the world. No, it took me years to digest that. But one thing I did notice at the moment I came back the first week at, at my job, that the things that we measure, workplaces traditionally, were not conducive to what I thought we should be having in the way that we design environments. How many people come to the office should not matter. How many square meters we have should not matter. They're important factors that we need to work with. I'm not living that far detached to the practicalities of the world. But measuring the success of work environments by those measurements were not, I thought, uh, meaningful. So in looking for more meaningful measurements of work environments, I came across a very interesting framework of dignity, measuring dignity in the workplace which I thought was a very interesting metric because dignity is a self-worth of assessment of my own worth, but it's also very social because it's validated by the system, by my peers, by society. And then you come across by dirty jobs through this framework. Some jobs might be dirty, like uh, being a janitor perhaps, it's physically uh, dirty, but they're also morally dirty jobs that... Some people might argue uh, working in tobacco, guns, manufacturing, um, all these type of things, they have uh, some morally wrong layers there. So this creates fascinating ways of understanding work. And it makes it human, and also within the context of society. And then for I created in collaboration with others, put together a team to try to design for dignity. And develop a framework uh, that will allow us to understand how dignity travels through social networks in our work environment and design towards that. Now, of course, this is very speculative. It does not have the rigor or the validity of other more established ways of measuring the work work environments. But I think it should be pursued. It's worth uh, trying to understand because it talks about to what you were mentioning before.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've always said there's dignity in all labor, right? Like I probably learned that through my, my family and also Charles Ingalls from Little House on the Prairie, which was a very formative show in my life growing up. Um, but you know, Charles worked in the field and as a farmer, right. And, and his hands in the soil. And he always felt like there was a a great amount of pride in that. Right. And, um, you know, as I've, I've kind of gone through uh, my own journeys, I've started to realize that that's why I, I shudder at these terms of skilled versus unskilled and knowledge versus, I guess, lack of knowledge, right? I just don't think those things really exist because I might be a degreed person and sat in a skyscraper doesn't mean that my work is relevant, useful, or more skilled than somebody that might be doing something else right and, and to your to your point about dirty jobs there's a show here i don't watch it but i know it exists it's like on one of these weird american networks um, called dirty jobs and the host goes you know some guy who cleans up sewers or like a, a person who has to like scrape things off of a, a skyscraper or something so all these kind of quasi-dangerous and literally jobs where you are dirty he will do the job with the people and kind of teach you about like, have you ever wondered how you get gum off of the 80th floor of whatever? That kind of show. But to your point, they he will never go and sit in like ExxonMobil and say, do you want to spend time with like the polluters? <laughs> you know, like, so again, these are cultural frames, right? What's okay and what's dirty to your point. But I want to give you a, an opportunity to talk more about the, the pilgrimage that you went on, right? Because it, not only because it, it, it takes up a good amount of the book, but because I think there's so many signposts, right? And you use these terms specifically. And I want to give you an opportunity to describe this walk because it does sound like something transformative, but interestingly enough, like you said, it took time to kind of pull it all together. So I want to, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of share more about that journey.
1: Yeah, well, so the difference between a walk and a pilgrimage, there, there are many, right? Uh, but one of them is the scale, the sheer scale of pilgrimage compared to the walk, because the walk, the time scale of the walk is the time you spend walking through the roots. The scale of the pilgrimage is when those ideas are planted, when uh, you go through the journey of exploration, and when you come with some sort of answers. And so while the walk itself, walking from Melbourne to Sydney, uh, it's around roughly 1,000 kilometers, took 42 days, which is it's a long walk, don't get me wrong, but it's nothing compared to the years that it took for me to gather those answers, those questions, sorry, first the questions that were planted in me, and then the process of trying to explore options, and then having this insight. So there were years in the making the other thing is that while you can explain a walk from its roots going from a to b a pilgrimage is much more complex it it's intangible it comes and goes it has this spurs that god takes you it's very hard to define very easy to get lost but also you progress the walk through steps through tasks uh, but the pilgrimage is what gives you sense of purpose, belonging. So I think that's why uh, I see a very good interesting overlap between uh, the action of walking and the pilgrimage and tasks and work. So I started this adventure when I wanted to explore the idea of isolation. Can we create innovation through isolation? I think we live in a world that is hyperconnected at the expense of creating uh, a lot of ideas, but all from the same strand, no diversity. So I engaged in this uh, 42-day walk, completely in isolation, no stimulation uh, from listening to podcasts and all this and that. And that put me in a
0: state of mind that was very unique. And I actually, um, for one second, I actually cited that, like you had those rules, right? That you were going to do it alone and you were not going to have any distractions, right? And distractions were, like you said, no music, podcasts, books, all those kind of things, right? So I, I highlighted that and underlined it in my question, because I think that added, an, at least when I read it, that added another layer of like, damn, you ain't got no music. Exactly right. But that created an environment. So as an architect, we
1: tend to think only of, as environments, you know, as a physical environment, but also the, the, the state that I was in. So Imagine not listening to or having a stimulus from reading or music or whatever, walking day in, day out for weeks, for hours. By the third day um, that the novelty of walking to Sydney wore off, I was bored beyond belief. Like, what am I doing? And I was tempted to, you know, just get off my phone and, and start scrolling or listening to music or, or whatever. But I'm glad I, I pushed because... At the other end of that, I saw the beauty of boredom, and boredom as a useful thinking tool that allows to see the world in a way that we can't in overstimulating environments. Now, boredom should not be a downplay because there are studies that suggest that people are willing to administer electric shocks to themselves rather than being left on their own thoughts. So it's something that even creates pain, physical pain, to be bored by oneself. But if properly managed, it allows to see and come up with different uh, ideas and and see the world differently. Uh, Also, because I was completely unassisted, I had to carry my water and all this and that, I experienced a lot of adversities. Adversities that I was hungry, I was cold... All these type of things that you can imagine that happens in this type of adventures. But out of them, there came out learnings and insights that made me wonder that if adversity is such a motivator of learning and growth, why is it that we remove it from work environments? Why is it that we strive to create frictionless environments without opportunity to introduce adversity leading to innovation? So those are the type of things that I was exploring during the walk. And as you mentioned, out of the the exercise came 34 signposts, which those are the lessons that after many years, I was able to structure. These signposts, the 34 of them, I think they collectively point to a better place to work, a place that nurtures our humanity and It's also conducive, to for the purpose of the organization. But there was one thing that I learned while I was doing the walk that I didn't know before. And I don't know if it's a big thing in the U.S. or in in the rural areas, but I certainly didn't see it uh, before here. So as I was working in rural environments, uh, roads, I saw a a sign that says horse poo, $2.00. So they were selling bags of manure, of horse poo from farms for $2. And I thought, oh, that's a novelty. As I kept walking, I saw saying more of these signs, you know, horse poo, $2. And Melbourne is in uh, Victoria and Sydney's in New South Wales. So you need to cross uh, states to go to that. And I kid you not, the moment that I crossed into states, I saw... The sign that says horse put $3. And there's always this rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne, that Sydney is more expensive than Melbourne. And now I have empirical evidence <laughs> that uh, Sydney is more expensive because it's one more dollar, it's $1 uh, more expensive. But imagine being my state of mind, you know, completely uh, isolated, uh, bored beyond belief, no thoughts. I started thinking crazy things. And I thought, well, I can become a millionaire, you know if I become a poo merchant and I am able <laughs> to move relocate a million bags of horse poo from Victoria to New South Wales i'm I'm become a millionaire. so I because I have all the time in the world, I start doing a breakdown of what will that take, you know, I have some yeah. pictures of, <laughs> of of how big they were, the bags, how long it will take me. And then, Doing all these calculations, I realized that it will take me 3,000 years to be able to move one uh, million bags, of course, from one side to the other. And as I was going through this process, I realized, well, you know what's interesting is that it's easier to understand all the variables that sits behind selling shit and be a millionaire than implementing more purposeful, meaningful ideas. So that helped me to contextualize that it's not the idea or the business in itself that means whether it's good or not, because yes, you can sell shit, but it's the economy in which those ideas operate. So going back to the idea of philosophy being not useful or not practical is because we're not creating the right economy for this type of ideas to resonate and have an opportunity. So right now, rather than, you know, being sour that these ideas are not being uh, adopted, what I'm trying to do is create an economy in which they can be adopted.
0: Absolutely. A lot of people sit in offices and move a lot of shit around, right? So your attempt at an arbitrage situation is what I feel people do most (laughs) of their days. You know, it's like I listen sometimes to people's job titles and what they supposedly do. One, I don't understand it. I'm like, you do what now? right It's like a jumble of words and then i'm like wow you get paid to do this like this seems like just such a a sad reflection on on where we are as a species but that selling shit at least i know what it is is actually quite grounding <laughs> exactly right
1: it's very practical you can see it
0: yeah <laughs> you can see it feel it smell it all of all of those things right and another point that came up in when I, when you were writing about about your your pilgrimage is this notion of idiots, right? And I, I, I wanna give you a, a chance to talk about that one a little bit because A, I, I laughed when I read it and, and I liked the way you framed it because I think again, it, it gives us quite some interesting insights into the human spirit. So these idiots and the fact that you didn't encounter them, what was that like?
1: So, you know, when I was planning the the walk, I came I was worried about things like fires or snakes or things here in Australia, there are a lot of snakes. and but I one of the biggest things that worried me when I started it was uh, that people will I would meet people in, in the road and say, "Well, be careful about idiots. There are a lot of out there, you know? like and and it was such a common way of people letting me know that I thought, well, who are these idiots, you know? And what will happen when I encounter them? However, I did not meet a single idiot, quite the opposite. I met people who were very willing to help. Some of them even offered me a ride and said, no guys, thanks, this is part of the journey, I want to walk, and others. uh, (laughs) The most interesting thing is how open they were with me. I have never had such conversations before my pilgrimage or after my pilgrimage, because almost instantly, people will open themselves and share their hopes and dreams in ways that I have never experienced before. And after thinking too much about what was different, I came to realize that it was the way I look, because if you see it, some pictures that are in the book, I was—I have this big hat and two backpacks, walking sticks, boots. You know, I have the look of someone that is following their dreams and hopes, which was a tacit invitation for others to, to share theirs. And then I thought, well, isn't that what she design should be like? Shouldn't we capture the unique aesthetic of that each organization do and use that aesthetic to wrap the organization in it? And that also sets the difference between good taste and good design, because sometimes designers strive for good taste, how things look. But let's face it, how I look, if you see the pictures there, it's not good taste uh, uh, about it. But it's a very good design because it helps to communicate a very honest purpose that people can identify with. To conclude, I'll say if we are able to understand the unique aesthetic of work of each organization and wrap it, then organizations can have better conversations with their employees and with their clients
0: yeah absolutely. I mean, it was also you know we've used this word a little bit. It's very practical, right? Like you are going out into the world on this pilgrimage, needing very specific things, right? And it's not a fashion show, right? Like it's for very practical purposes. i, I was I was really touched by that part because, you know, America is a place that has this like romantic notion of exploration obviously, that that is also rooted in exploitation, extraction, and colonialism, right? So I'm not looking it over, but I'm talking about the branding, up, right? That America is this frontier, you can go out in it. And I've had friends who have like driven cross country, you know, there's all these things that are very, I think, somewhat unique to American pop culture. And I love the, the notion of your pilgrimage. And I thought to myself, like, I would never do that here, right? One of the reasons would be because of the idiots that travel in the United States historically, and, and I would argue even in present day, has not been safe for people who look like me, right? So the notion of like me saying like, hey, I'm going to walk from New York to even Buffalo, right? So I'll, I'll like put it in, in a New York state of mine, because I always joke around that when you leave New York and Westchester, upstate New York is Mississippi, right? Like, you know, for all of this notion that New York is a, a liberal haven whatever that means, it's like, that's New York City. (laughs) You go up into the interlands of New York, you might as well be in the Confederacy, right? So it's like, I'm not trying to walk up there. But your book challenged me to think about not doing a pilgrimage per se, but like, where do these ideas come from? Where do these notions come from? Sometimes they're rooted in reality, right? And an American reality is a different reality, right? We all embody different realities. But I loved the fact that you confronted idiots in the geography and the culture in which you took your pilgrimage
1: <laughs> yes but again you know. it, it's how you communicate and um, how people perceive you I think
0: yeah absolutely you know we're living in that in that space you know I want to jump into the final two segments of the show right so I'm keeping an eye on the time and the first segment is off the dome where I, I ask questions, where it's literally the f- the first thing that comes to one's mind. And, and your pilgrimage was ripe for questions, right? Um, <laughs> during your pilgrimage, what was the oddest, like most unforeseen place that you ended up spending a night? Camping places,
1: sometimes I will have to camp next to the road. They were quite interesting, but also other ones where Pops, hotel, uh, in, here in Australia, they call uh, bars, Pops, hotels, because they used to have back in the day, a little uh, accommodation. I will stay there. And then you get a glimpse of type of Australia that I'd never got to experience. So they were quite interesting. Okay.
0: <laughs> and what is the one item that looking back on it, you wished you'd had on your pilgrimage That even with all your planning and you do, you have like these great pictures of the backpack and all the things you needed. Like, what is something that you realize kind of halfway through, like, fuck, I really wish I had this. It happened to me the other way around, you know, because I I had to
1: carry things. I was always thinking, what can I let go? <laughs> because it's so heavy. And in the book, I mentioned one of the first things to go was a towel. <laughs> because let's face it, it's winter. I'm not showering. <laughs> towel hygiene is going out of the, the place. I The towel weighed as much as a banana. And I'd rather be carrying bananas, and uh, things that I could eat. <laughs> so in my process, I didn't miss anything. If anything, I was looking at every day, what can I get rid of? <laughs> uh, which is also an interesting practice in, in our daily life. Let's not think about what we're missing, but uh, we have an abundance of things that perhaps are dragging us back.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great one. We can do a whole show on that. probably. <laughs> My last off the dome is if you could plan another pilgrimage anywhere in the world, to the extent that you think you might need one or might want to do another one, where where would you have that?
1: People have asked me this uh, quite often, and I mentioned in the book that even though walking is the iconic manifestation of a pilgrimage, you can do a pilgrimage without walking. At the end of the day, the pilgrimage is the exploration, new ways of seeing the world, of answering a question that could be very personal, the meaning of life, or in my case, better working environments. And since that exploration is mental, that can happen everywhere, anytime. (laughs) And uh, so now I'm in daily pilgrimages. I see now my, my, my days as uh, taking uh, the pilgrim's mindset and applying that to the work that I do.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's a wonderful way of putting it. You know, the, the final segment of the show is called The Drop. And The Drop is something that we share with our listeners. It could be anything at all. Um, I'm going to go first. And my drop is an invitation for folks to experience, spend time with the um, music of Wayne Shorter. He's a incredibly famous and accomplished jazz musician who has a, a